Hello again, everyone. You're listening to Season 3 of Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm your host, Crystal Martinez-Acosta, licensed professional counselor, supervisor, and board-certified counselor. Have you ever heard the saying that the personal is political and the political is personal? Well, it's my opinion that therapy and mental health are political. And so to discuss this intersection of politics and mental health, I invited our guest today, Veronica Carvajal. She's an attorney and could be the first Latina mayor of a top 20 city right here in El Paso, Texas. She's running for office and is a highly skilled critical thinker who knows what it's like to be on the front lines. This is also your little reminder to register to vote and to go out and vote. I hope you enjoyed this interview and remember to visit us at www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.podbean.com for more episodes or write to me at hello at throughtheeyesofatherapist.org. Okay, so we have a very special guest today on the podcast, and her name is Veronica Carvajal, and she is a mayoral candidate here in El Paso, Texas. As many of you know, a lot of my listeners are from across the country, but we are in El Paso, Texas, which is a border town um, that borders Mexico and Las Cruces, New Mexico, and Texas. So we're a very special little place, and that's why they call it El Paso, which means the pass, right? We have a lot of important things coming up in the country. Um, we have elections for president. We also have local elections. Um, so that's coming up in November, and I thought that it would be really timely and um, a really important thing to touch on because, um, as you know, this season on Through the Eyes of a Therapist, we are covering current events and pop culture. I thought it would be really good to have Veronica on because she's running for mayor. So go ahead, Veronica. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Always um, excited about talking to community uh, folks, especially the younger generation. Um, I just turned 44, so I consider everyone you know, that's younger than me to be part of um, this brand new day that we're about to enter, I think, not just locally, but nationally. Um, I am a fronteriza. I'm a lawyer. I'm an environmentalist. I grew up in both El Paso and Juarez. My great-grandparents met in El Paso 100 years ago. They lived in tenements um, in the Tamisal neighborhood and then decided to move to Juarez even though my great-grandpa had a great job at the railroad, because they could not buy a home here, and they wanted their kids to have a yard. And so now I know that it was probably because of redlining and because of, you know, I mean, he had a great job, but it was still a low-wage job. And so they moved to Juarez, very close to, to one of the bridges, and he commuted every day. And then his son, my grandpa, did the same. My mom was a garment worker and then a school cafeteria worker, and she commuted every day, too. And then I commuted, and I went to public schools, and I actually developed severe anxiety when I was little because of our commute, because I knew that it was against the law, because I was not supposed to be attending public schools. The bridge itself was a really, really stressful um, space in the early mornings. People still carried guns. I mean, I saw people brandishing guns. There was, like, a lot of just fights and noise and all kinds of things. But I learned a lot just from the bridge itself about poverty and child labor and all kinds of things. I can imagine that that commute had an impact on you. I did really well in school. That was sort of my thing. And I went to Brown University. I studied environmental studies, came home and did some air pollution work, and then decided to go to law school because no one was really talking about justice work within the framework of of the environment in El Paso, and I had done environmental justice work at Brown. Very important work. So I went to law school at UT, worked for a firm doing toxic torts um, during those three years, and then I was lucky enough to get hired by Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. We're the third largest legal aid provider in the country. We provide free legal services to people who are poor, either very poor like all the time, or they're poor because of a disaster or a crisis or a mass shooting, and they slip into poverty. And I've been there 16 years. I've done environmental justice cases, housing cases, dealing with everything from slumlords to real estate scammers to mobile home park residents and, and changes to those. And um, I've taken on some cases dealing with what we think about as sort of civil rights. So I'm one of the lead attorneys in the Duranguito case in El Paso that's really fighting the use of public bond money 
for private interests. And that's something that we see consistently in El Paso is we have at least a decades-long history of subsidizing the extremely wealthy in our community. Um, and these are folks who are known as philanthropists, they're known as leaders of the community, huge campaign contributors who also receive more than their fair share in our public taxes. We have one of the highest residential tax bases in the state and in the country. And so while our homes are affordable in terms of sales prices and they're actually lowering, we're losing value in our properties, our taxes are increasing. So we're getting dinged on both ends. Tell us a little bit why you wanted to run for mayor. I decided to run because since 2006, when I took on a case against the city, um, I've had a number of opportunities to see that the city does not understand the everyday El Pasoan's life. Um, They don't know how to engage with the public. They don't know how to fund public programs in a way that is effective. And so I'm just kind of done. (laughs) I'm also really, really worried about um, us becoming gentrified. And I see that more and more with our barrios, um, with Duranguito, Segundo Barrio, Lincoln Park, and the Tamisan. That's sort of what propelled me to decide to just do it now rather than to wait. love the Segundo Barrio a lot because my parents grew up there and they're from there and we we speak Segundo Barrio Spanish <laughs> in the house so it's like laqueale, daileale, um, <laughs> like all kinds of stuff. It's not really proper Spanish um, but it's you know it's a special it's a special place that is foundational to our city and I feel like gentrification is a huge threat in cities everywhere, right? But I feel like here in El Paso, we have so much history and so much um, value in our communities. And we can't just erase people. Like, we can't just erase histories like that. Um, And so, yeah, I feel like that risk is huge. I have a question from the audience that might be kind of relevant here. It says, um, what sets you apart from other mayoral candidates at this point? There's six candidates total. The most obvious difference is that I'm the only woman um, that I would be making history, not only for the city, but for the country. Um, I would be the first Latina mayor of a city in the top 19, we're ranked 19, so one of the top 20 largest cities in the country. I would be the first Latina mayor of that size. Um, Regina Romero of Tucson broke the record for the top 25 cities. However, I'm the, to me, what's of value um, in my distinction is that I am the only truly progressive. I am the real deal. I am not running because I need to run. This is not the next rung on my on my personal or professional ladder. I have no business running. I have a great job. I'm a group coordinator, so I'm one of the top uh, staffers at Trala. And I have just, you know, my clients, my cases, my coworkers are amazing. I have other personal projects that I could work on. This is not something I'm doing to promote my name. I'm doing this because I am scared, because I am angry. And I am prepared. Even with, through the crisis, I have been so extremely frustrated. And I, I'm like, you know, does someone give me the keys to the bus? I will drive this bus because I know how to deal with crisis. And I know what things to anticipate because I'm a legal aid lawyer. To Trala's credit, we have been trained. We have been given so much freedom and like just taking things on. Um, and then we have a lot of support to do it. And I, the main support we have is having expertise. And what's been super frustrating, even with, with you know, listening to what other candidates are saying, I'm like, they don't know what they're talking about, they, if they talk at all, right? They're not addressing pressing issues. And so I am the only candidate who, from the very beginning, has since March, March 12th, has been advocating to the city council to deal with things related, like, you know, to the clusters. How do you prevent clusters? We already knew that there was going to be an issue with clusters in different places, Um I am the only candidate that talked about transforming the police department. No one else is talking about it. That's a very timely issue. I mean, Black Lives Matter was huge in El Paso and throughout the country, and it really started this conversation that none of the other candidates want to touch because they're afraid of the police union. Um, I'm the only one talking about environmental justice. I'm talking about 
climate change and rising temperatures as as detrimental to poor people who are trying to figure out if they're going to pay their electric bill or they're going to die from heat stroke. There have been a number of, of opportunities for other candidates to speak up and to make a stance that's controversial, and they haven't done it. And they won't do it. I'm doing this because my community needs me to do it, and I feel that I, I feel like I know I'm the, the most um, prepared to do it because I have been paying attention to city council for years. I have sued the city four times. I know who the key staff are. Um, I know who needs to go. <laughs> um, and so I have an insider view to not only those, like, you know, the administrative staff, but also I have also dealt one-on-one with the people who run the city, including the home inspectors, including the people who run these programs. And so I also understand their perspectives and the things that the city needs to do. I want people to understand your stance, like where you're coming from, that this isn't, again, like you said, um, another rung in the ladder of your professional career or just because you want to be recognized for something or throw your name out there or something like that. You actually care about our community. And I feel like all of the issues that you talked about, including climate change, Black Lives Matter, COVID clusters, things like that, all of that has an impact or a tie to our mental health. And so I know that my colleagues and I, um, the ones that I work with closely and other people across the country, we're having discussions about how, of course, COVID is having a huge impact on us and mental health in general, but also all the other things. So when we look at a client and we look at somebody that we're doing therapy with, We have to look at the whole system. We have to look at everything that is affecting that person. So it's not just, oh, this person is probably just depressed and we're going to give them antidepressants and we're done. A good therapist will look at the whole system. And what's important about what you said is all of that systemic stuff, all of that pressure that's on people. So, for example, if I were to have a client who lives in the Segundo Barrio or who is in who has slipped into poverty because of COVID-19 or they were a small business owner and they lost a bunch of business and had to close down and now they don't know what they're going to do of course that's going to impact their mental health and so I feel like when people ask me like are you sure you want to put politics into like your podcast and I'm like of course because (laughs) the personal is political and the political is personal and so we have to understand that as therapists you know um, it's in our ethical code to be able to advocate for clients and and that's at different levels so we can go out and vote we can go out and protest we can call you know city people or different organizations to see if they can help our clients. Those are the kinds of advocacy things that we're called to do as therapists. Um, And I know that, you know, licensed clinical social workers do a lot of that same work. And so um, I really feel like you're in touch with like the individual. And I think that's a really, really important thing as far as politics goes, because I feel like we know And I'm not going to mention names, but like, I think we know in the White House, like what out of touch looks like (laughs) Um, and and how that's a huge issue that alone has had a huge impact on mental health. I feel like I have to deal with clients on a weekly basis who are consistently triggered by our president. It's it's really interesting Yes, all of this is tied together, and I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. There is a a pretty strong tie between mental health and politics. Like, you you just can't separate them. So let's continue talking about mental health. I'm going to move on to the next question, which is, how do you think the current overall national and or local political climate can affect a person's mental state? Well, I think going back to what you're saying and and looking at a person as as a whole person, right, Um, and all of the things, every person is different. So there is no one-size-fits-all solution to mental health, right? People are coming to us with mental health that stems from physical issues, like being in physical pain because of a different disability. People are coming, are in our community because they have trauma, 
Um, and this includes law enforcement officers. It includes, you know, border patrol agents who had to separate children from their parents. Um, it includes lawyers. It includes a lot of people who have secondary and firsthand trauma that has gone untreated. There's a whole gamut of, of mental health issues. Um, I think most of them, it's fair to say, are gone, are going undiagnosed and untreated um, in our community. And it's not simply because of resources, although I think that's a huge issue. I think it's also because culturally we haven't gotten there yet. Um, there's a lot of toxic masculinity. Um, there are, you know, what we've seen, I was just talking to people about this yesterday, at Legal Aid, our numbers, and this is across our program, which is not just in El Paso, but our domestic violence team has been busy since, you know, the shutdown orders. They have been extremely overwhelmed with cases, um, and, and then it seems that in terms of child abuse, the child abuse cases have skyrocketed during this pandemic. And I think it points to the fact that we need community more than ever. Like we need to be able to reach out to people. We need to be looking out for each other and then trying to figure out how to do holistic type of work. When it comes to the, the role of the city, you know, you think about what it does. Like right now, I feel like because we have, most of us have stayed home, not everyone. That's why it keeps spreading. But most of us have stayed home. And I think for me personally, I've come to realize what is truly essential for me. For me to feel okay every day, I need to have access to good food. I need to have good sleep. I need to have a safe space to be in, not just in terms of environmentally, but also in terms of feeling safe, right? Mm -hmm. um, being with people who I feel safe with. Right. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Knowing when my next paycheck is going to come. For other people who have kids, knowing what's going to happen with the school year. And I think that when it comes to the city and the county, the state, the federal government, we don't have enough leaderships who understand or care about mental health from the very beginning. So when, for instance, we think about the shutdown orders, it did not make any sense to shut down the parks. Maybe the playgrounds because COVID, you know, um, does seem to propagate or, or linger on metal for longer than other types of materials. But the parks themselves are a great outlet for people especially because not everyone has a yard. Not everyone even has space within their housing unit to spread out and to be. And so when we shut down the museums and the libraries, I think that a lot of those things contributed to the incidences of child abuse, um, to, you know, to people just feeling super frustrated, kids not having anywhere to go, people not having necessarily good Wi-Fi so they can entertain their children with, with you know, things on, on the screen. And so when you have leadership that assumes that everyone is as privileged as they are, you're going to see all of the cracks in our system consume some of our most vulnerable people. I think that what I can bring to the table is understanding that, understanding what things to look out for. And then I also, as a manager, have had to set up programs to do screening, to do references, to do immediate help when when it's adequate there's a lot of layers i think about those children that have been abused how are they going to deal with their trauma you know are we going to ever deal with that trauma for them so that they don't again continue the cycle of abuse down the line yeah what are some of the things that you think you could tackle as mayor so it's a, I mean, it's a lot of things and i think one of the first things i would do as mayor is to really think about what kinds of committees we have and, and how we utilize those committees, because I know from being at Legal Aid and then now from the campaign that we have an abundance of experts, people who are on the ground. Like you said, we had social workers. We had a roundtable with social workers a couple of weeks ago that was so incredibly eye-opening for me. And I know a lot already, right, because of the work I've done for this long, but I learned so much about them and about what they would like to see done um, that I think we need to establish spaces for our local community experts, both people who are providing services as well as those who receive services to tell us what works and what doesn't work. And then to funnel resources in that direction. And we don't do that. We, our city has a history of doing what it wants to do with certain money, saying it did a good job, but not having anything to back up why it's saying it did a good job. And clearly we're having, we still have suicide by cop. We still have folks who are homeless 
despite all of the homeless advocates trying to keep them housed because it's not housing is is first then you also need caseworkers you also need you know um, access to good mental health treatments um, we have a hugely uninsured population that also affects your access to mental health um, care so yeah it's a lot there's a there's a scripture in the bible that says um, where your treasure is so is your heart and i think like where is the city putting its treasure it's not putting it in its people so it does not prioritize people especially those with mental health the mass shooting i think for me was one of the last times that i got to see the impact of firsthand trauma and then and then also helping myself and our staff dealing with the secondary trauma you've seen things on the front lines and I think that's a really important thing. I was talking to some of my colleagues about how, man, if only, you know, human service people ran the world, right? Like if lawyers and doctors and social workers and therapists could have the platform, uh, a political platform, like we would really change things probably from the bottom up. And I, and I think yeah. that that's where you're coming from. And I that's why I thought to interview you because I feel like your connection to people is really a priority and you are really in touch with the needs of, of El Paso, like the community. I know that some of the other candidates um, have have had other types of positions or other careers where it puts them out of touch. They have such privilege. And I have a lot of allies. I have a lot of white allies um, who have come to El Paso. They're transplants. I think of them as plants. Just moved here and they have actually rooted. Like they are doing hard, hard work and they're doing it with so much joy and so much good intention. Um, they're not white saviors. They're just white workers who are willing to do the work. And I appreciate people who are willing to do the work. And in some ways, I feel like I'm just a very like practical person. Like there's a problem. We need to tackle it. How do we get those resources in? Done. And, and so I, I, I have to give a shout out to all my white allies who have moved here for whatever different reasons and who decided to plant long, long, long roots and have, you know, sprouted really long roots and are doing great work. But there are other folks who come here to exploit. And that includes Latinos who have come here to just exploit our community to make a name for themselves. And this, you know, they're a big fish in a small pond and they're okay with that. I want folks who are here to invest. They're investing their talent. They're investing their love of, of brown people and immigrants. And um, I, I welcome them. And they're a big part of our campaign. They're a big part of the work that I've done for the last 25 years. I've had plenty. I mean, I wouldn't have gone to Brown if it hadn't been for my Jewish high school teacher who was like, you want to do environmental studies? They have Brown has the best program. Let's get you in there. And I was like, no one in my family has gone to college, much less far away. But she believed in me. And she's this Jewish woman who had, like, her background and mine could not have been more different. So I think that I don't want to dismiss our allies. But I, I do feel that, like you said, the fact that you're in the trenches, right, that you're working with people every day gives you a very different perspective. Mm -hmm. I think one of the first times I saw a grown man cry in my office was a survivor of the floods that we had in 2006 who had they all you know my clients in Moab had five feet of water I'm five three five feet of water coming into their neighborhood and no one would take the 911 call because the county kept saying you're in the city and the city kept saying you're in the county they belong to the city they were annexed years ago so they had to some somehow they found out that someone in the neighborhood in the in the colonia had a canoe and so they used that canoe to get themselves out and everyone did beautifully, but then they had all of this trauma. And to its credit, FEMA had a trauma hotline, um, but clearly, you know, this man still had a lot of unresolved issues as did most of them. And so I think sometimes, and, and by the way, the city came in two weeks later and said, oh wait, we're buying you out and we had to sue them over that. But I think like understanding from the very beginning, who do we need to call on? Like I was saying before, who are these experts so that we can have a, a plan that as much as possible is comprehensive and is, is stimming all of these different issues that are going to blow up later on. We need to continue to start thinking that way and, and relying. I think with COVID, my gosh, it would have been very different if we'd had medical experts, truly medical experts um, at the city 
just informing, like, how do you spend this CARES Act money? And I think, I know the city has a, a committee, but they're still working on a plan. You know, we're five months in and it's like, when are you going to implement this plan? Because people are dying on your watch and you have doctors on this committee and you have other folks on this committee, this task force, and they're still working on, you know, a plan. (laughs) Yeah. And I understand and I can hear your frustration and I feel like it's good, right? And when we talk about mental health and emotions and something that we even teach kids is like, Anger is not bad. Anxiety is not bad. Any feeling is not bad. It might be pleasant or unpleasant, but it's not bad. And most of the time, anger or frustration tells us that something needs to change, that something has to happen. And it's usually fuel. Like, we can use it to help us change something. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to channel that emotion into, like, let's do this. How do you think policies and laws affect our mental health in the El Paso community? I think, I mean, COVID has provided us clear examples, right, of policies being um, implemented and imposed without thinking about the consequences of them. And I alluded to them before, of not seeing our public spaces as spaces for release or mental health stability, like our parks, our libraries, our museums, our community centers, our viejitos are suffering right now. A lot of them, you know, their only source of, of socialization are the what we call the adult daycares, most of them which are run by the city. And so they're isolated at home. They don't have the interaction that they need. We are social beings. And for many of us who are younger, we've been able to Zoom. We've been able to do FaceTime. We've been able to do even like in-person meetings at a distance. They don't necessarily have that. They don't drive anymore. They don't have access to, to telephones that have their smartphones, for instance. And so, you know, I, I worry so much about about them. I visited my 93-year-old my client, Antonia Morales, who's the queen of Duranguito, who's just a wealth of, of love and information and history. And, you know, she needs that. She needs that. She's, you know, because we haven't been able to visit or have events there and those things brought her a lot of joy. And joy, you know, contributes to longevity um, and good health. And so we reopened bars, but we didn't reopen these other spaces. We haven't reopened them quickly enough or well enough. And and that was because that, that was a priority because the economy was a priority and not our people. Even though we know that bars are are one of the top, if not the top, highest risk for spreading COVID. So again, it's just like putting profit over people never works. It it doesn't. It might work in the immediate moment if your goal is to profit, but long term, it's just not going to really heal or help our community. In terms of of other issues, um, I mean, when we think about funding, that's a huge issue that's come up with the discussion about the value of having a police department that consumes about 60% of our, our general fund money. Oh my gosh, that's so much. <laughs> um, it's so much. Yikes. So much. And then, yeah, I mean, and, and to be fair, the largest expense within that is the pension plan, right? Police do not tend to heal, they react. And it's important, you know, if someone is sexually assaulting you, if someone is trying to break into your house, you need someone to show up and stop it, right? That is the role, I think, of the police, and I think they play a very important role. There are other instances where you don't want the police to show up. We know from experience that if you have a mental health crisis in your hands, calling the police could turn deadly. And so we have to continue to expand. We have right now, it's called the crisis intervention team, but it, it needs a lot of help. It needs a lot of resources. It needs more expansion. But that's basically when a an officer is paired up with a social worker um, or someone that's in the has been trained in crisis intervention and can show up to a mental health crisis scene and and diffuse. The city has been sued so many times, very expensive lawsuits over excessive use of force with people with mental health issues, and so that's. That's when we really think about policy and policy, not just in terms of funding, but also in terms of training and in terms of accountability. Those cases have shown us through discovery, through depositions and and through um, an analysis by judges that our police force 
is right now designed to protect all officers, not the public. And that is incredibly damaging to our community. It's incredibly expensive for our community. And so we really need to think about what you were saying before. Our, our true experts, um, when it comes to community mental health, um, are the folks who are on the front line and their voices need to influence our policing. Their voices need to influence our distribution of resources. The homeless um, coalition and the, the homeless advocacy community is really incredible. I've done, um, you know, they do a point in time check every year where they go and they, they try to count the number of homeless people in the community. And, and I've also worked with a number of clients who are formerly homeless or who are always like in and out of homelessness. And people always think of that, like, oh, the homeless, why aren't we helping the homeless? There are a lot of people trying to help the homeless or people who are homeless. The problem is that we need housing. We need, we know that housing first is really what works. And once you have someone housed, then you can deal with addiction, mental health, um, hoarding, all kinds of issues that come with that. Um, but it, it, you need both and you need both of them consistently. I've had clients who I have physically myself trans, you know, transported for months from one motel to another while they got into housing, some sort of housing situation. And then they undo it. Like a lot of clients who have mental health issues that are not diagnosed or treated, as much as you try as an advocate to find them the resources they need, they will undo them because it's they're, they're not being treated as a whole person. So finding them um, housing and food is not enough, is not enough. And you end up opening new cases, one after the other after the other, because we're, we're just trying to get them to survive day to day. And how we get them to thrive independently is by having very targeted resources. So I think that we have the commitment from a lot of local, you know, on the ground experts, but we haven't had the commitment from um, the people that hold the money. And that's really where we need to reshift and rethink um, how we address these problems holistically. Yeah, I agree with you. And then also on top of that, I feel like the people who are working in these organizations, whether they be like case managers or even therapists that work for nonprofits, because I worked and lived in the nonprofit world for 10 years. And so that was interesting because there's this huge issue of like burnout. Um, it just, there was one person for every 70 people or 75 people or more. Um, and how is that even humanly possible? Like you're, the workers are going to burn out. And so we do need to distribute resources a lot more evenly um, to prevent you know, not only our talent, but like the, the frontline workers from burning out. Um, and so it's, it's about retention, but also about taking care of the workers too. Um, so that's really important. Super. And I, I know I'm very lucky. I work at a place that is unionized. Um, that said, I've been with Trala for 16 years. I have, and we're a nonprofit funded by the federal government. So we've seen the ups and downs um, I've been through um, hiring freezes. I've been through salary freezes, layoffs. Um, we have survived. I've survived a lot at Trala because I decided I wanted to, to commit myself to it. But it has been extremely stressful. And I know what it's like to also be, to not ha- to not be paid well. Uh, we went through that for many years where it was like, oh, my gosh, I, I don't want to lose my house. How do I, you know, I'm dealing with other people's stress. And it's a very stressful work environment. Um, I have way too many cases, and also at home, I'm trying to figure out how to not get foreclosed on, um, and we don't consider all those things, and I think that the work that that a lot of us do in the trenches needs to be compensated better, um, because it is extremely important work, right? When we think about how much police officers and CBP officers make, it's incredible. They've got, they, they get paid a lot, and... Um, maybe that's fine, but then why isn't everyone else paid the same? Um, because we need to alleviate people's stress and, and um, you know, 
if people would tell me all the time, you're doing God's work. And I'm like, you know, all of us should be doing God's work. <laughs> that way we don't, some of us don't feel burnt out for these different things. Like we just can't seem to get enough assistance anywhere um, and, and spread the work and also be financially stable ourselves so that we're not also worried in, in terms of how we're going to deal with our own financial responsibilities. Um, so it's all over. And I think um, we, it's really about rethinking and reimagining um, what is important to our community and what it means to have a community that is free from trauma, um, free from untreated mental health. And I think that community will thrive, you know, and can be an example for the rest of, of the country um, if we decide to tackle it. So then what is the plan? What do we do? I know I have concerns, um, but the plan has to be crafted by the experts, and those are not going to be the directors of any of these um, psych centers um, or nonprofits. It's going to be the field workers who are currently in the field, currently talking to people, currently seeing what their clients need. And they can tell us, here's what, you know, do we need to invest in better housing, more housing inspectors to ensure that people are living in adequate um, housing? Do we need to invest in more um, neighborhood grocery stores so people have access to good, healthy food and can afford it? Um, do we need to invest in parks and um, community centers? We need to figure out what we need to do. And right now, I don't know the answer. Um, I think my first pri- one of my first priorities would be to gather the right experts to figure out what it is that they suggest that we do. The psychiatrists that accept Medicaid have been very limited very, very limited. And so why don't we incentivize people moving here? Move to El Paso for five, 10 years and we'll help you pay off your school loans. Um, and if you break that contract, you have to pay it back or something. You know, like we need to have, I'm a lawyer still, so my, there needs to be a fallback provision on everything. People people will break contracts. Um, so, but there are ways that we can incentivize the right kind of people coming into our community instead of just complaining about it or saying we need to build this brand new building to attract them where it's like maybe what they want is something different. Maybe they want a loan, repay- loan repayment program, which is what I had at, at Trala. Without that loan repayment program, I would have had to leave. I couldn't have afforded to continue to do this kind of work. We think about always laying out the red carpet for corporations, um, some of whom don't pay great wages and some of whom leave before the contract is over after we've given them millions in tax incentives. We need to rethink that and invest in people. We talk about economic development a lot, and I know it, it, the city does. And the way that I've come to think of economic development is all of these other things that everyone thinks of as little things. Like, are we welcoming to the LGBT community? That is a huge economic development factor, right? I have so many friends who in the 90s left El Paso for doing great, amazing things, but they, they don't want to come back because they don't find themselves welcome here. That's one issue. Child care. Providing child care that's affordable and good quality is huge for women. It's huge for for people entering the workforce. And also it has a potential to hire lots and lots of people um, in that area. The arts. We know the arts are a huge tool for healing, um, but, you know, they do so many other things, too. And we have hundreds of microenterprise um, artists who are struggling financially because they don't have enough support here. Whereas El Paso could easily export a lot of art, um, graphic design, messaging, etc. If we were to protect, you know, retain our artist community, um, you know, and then there are other things like environmental tourism and historic um, or heritage tourism. But these are, we really need to rethink the way that we we think about economic development. We're used to this model of trickle down. We give to the very wealthy in the hopes that they're going to be generous to the very poor. That has not historically worked to dismantle systemic poverty and systemic racism. I mean, we definitely have a wealth of information and culture and experts here in El Paso. I was talking to someone from a, a union who said, you know, we have our leaders have a history of going to unionized cities and talking to those employers and saying, move to El Paso because we don't have unions and you can pay them less. And if you have a cross national relationship, you can pay those workers in Juarez even less. We cannot, no, we cannot go to other communities and steal good jobs from Americans to bring subpar jobs to El Paso and continue to sell ourselves as a community that's willing to be exploited. Right. Yeah, I agree. And something that I always say to my clients is, 
you're the expert on yourself. Like I've maybe met with them for an hour a week. Like, what is that? You know, <laughs> like it's not very much. So speaking with them, trying to really understand their story and getting their feedback, I think is a really, really valuable asset. And a lot of us feel like, well, I mean, we're the experts. We're the ones who went to school and everything. Like, yeah, that has its place. But I feel like if you're going to put people first, um, we have to understand that everybody has their own expertise, right? Like that dicho in Spanish is um, cada cabeza es un mundo. How do you balance being a part of an unjust, oppressive system, but still fight for the most vulnerable? I love being a Latina, and I love some of the things that I think are very cultural to us, and that includes storytelling. Um, when I was nine, I, I had um, a really beautiful opportunity to spend time with my great-grandfather. And my great-grandfather was um, the, I guess, the mayor of... Um, Guadalupe Distrito Bravo, which is this little town um, across from Fabens. And I asked him why he became a politician. My grandparents, who I grew up with, um, read the newspaper every day, and they would refer to politicians as a bunch of thieves, una bola de rateros. And so I was like, Patano, why did you become a politician, right? Because we don't like them. And he <laughs> said, I joined the party, which was the PRI back then, the only party. Mexico has had a one-party system for 70 years. I joined the party because I got tired of seeing them exploit my people. And when he said that, it triggered a lot in me. And I was nine years old, but at that point, I understood poverty because every day I commuted to El Paso and I saw kids who were working um, at the bridge, who were exposed to adult worries and adult uh, risk cars, smog, all kinds of, of things. And I knew because of the way my mom talked to me that school was necessary, that I, it was the only way I would have access to jobs that she could not access. So I also realized that this, what was happening to those kids and the way that my life was so different from them was not because of God. God did not decide you are poor and you are privileged. It was people. It was people who had the power to um, control your destiny, but it was also people who could change that and work for good. We have systems. Um, my great-grandpa decided to join the system of politics, and he became the treasurer. The first thing he wanted to do was be able to control the money that the party was doling out and to make sure that it went to the right things. And so he was instrumental in bringing infrastructure to Guadalupe, which was really important because... Um, farmers, and he was a grower, he had farm workers, right? He, he didn't work the fields himself, although he did work alongside his workers, and people loved him. He was a very good boss. Um, but he understood that people needed transportation mechanisms in order to sell their goods. So he focused on getting that, that money funneled into the right directions. Um, he had to work within that system. Um, he, you know, he went into the belly of the beast, um, as a lawyer, I had I had to decide when I was a nonprofit worker um, back in the late 90s, nonprofit work was still, you know, romanticized as being the end all be all of social change. And I was very frustrated with it. I did not find that I had enough power, enough control to really direct anything. And so that's why I went to law school, because um, people may not listen to my clients but they will listen to me because they're afraid of getting sued. I understood that. And so that's why I, I decided to go into the belly of the beast myself and become a lawyer and to transform things from the inside out. Understanding 100% that that's limited, um, which is now why I'm going into politics, because the, the success that is very tangible for me is what I've had with my housing cases. I have, no, I have not lost a house. If my clients have walked away, it's been with compensation. But I haven't had that with my community development cases. My Osarco workers who are dealing with all kinds of health issues because of the, the toxicity that they were exposed to, I couldn't fix that. I could not get them compensation when the company shut down in bankruptcy. My Montana Vista clients who have to live next to a power plant, I couldn't stop that power plant. I got them great concessions, 
but I couldn't stop it itself. My clients in the Tamisal who are every single day battling something new, school closures, a school bus hub, the recycling facilities, the railroad, the semis from the, the bridge traffic, the air pollution in that in that air basin that sits there, those are things I can't fix through lawsuits. We've tried. The law has its limits. This is a system that we have. Are there times where I just want to press restart? Yes, right? And rebuild our systems from the from the from scratch? Absolutely. But we don't have, but at the same time I'm a very practical person and right now there are people who are who are struggling. And so how we deal with that right now is through the systems that we have alongside the creation of new ones. And so people have asked me, do I want to abolish the police or ICE? And the answer is no. I feel that we need to not just reform, but transform them at the same time that we are building something new. Because the reality is that right now, there are people who are suffering terrible violence and they need someone to call on. The police aren't always the best. And so I think that right now is a time for the police to make a case for themselves and to do the best job that they can make. Because I think that many of us are ready to build something new. But for me, the understanding is like, in the meantime, we can't leave people hanging. In the meantime, we need to still deal with what we have as we start to reimagine and plant the seeds. And so that's why I go back to hopefully when I am your mayor, I will listen to the experts from the get-go. And we're going to start creating these new systems that are transitional and transformative and can be self-sustaining long-term so that we can show people what is possible. Going back to what my my great grandfather said to me, we're all one tribe. We're all one community. I met with my with Donita yesterday. She's the the ninety three year old queen of Durangita, as I said before, and she said, you know, somos muchos. There's a lot of us. Y si nos agarramos de la mano, if we hold on to each other's hands, there's more of us. There is more of us. But you need to be engaged. You need to go into the belly of the beast. Like if we all go inside the belly of the beast together, I feel that we can, <laughs> we can uh, kill the beast from the inside and start something fresh. I agree. I I really like the fact that you're a critical thinker. You can look at things from different angles. Everything is multifaceted. You can't be impulsive. Um, you have to harness the anger. You can't just be like, I'm going to abolish the police or fire this person or whatever. And sometimes I feel like that gets the best of me. And maybe that's why <laughs> that's why um, I, I left the nonprofit world and went into private practice because I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um <laughs> <laughs> but it was like I I couldn't necessarily harness that anger uh, in, in maybe in the right way, wrong way. I don't know what it was, but um, and I'm really glad that we were able to do this interview because I feel like sometimes um, the news or Instagram posts or like Facebook things like they just it touches the surface and it doesn't really get to kind of like the heart of like what the candidate is really about. I, I want to know also where people can contact you or if you have any events coming up, anything that you feel like you want to add? Um, so our website is vetoformayor.com. Um, hello at vetoformayor.com is our email. We're just doing a ton of stuff right now. We're, we're less than 60 days from early voting, and so we need everyone's help. Um, I really hope I'm not a part of a runoff. Because basically, for folks who, who don't know, we have six candidates. And so if I don't get, I believe it's over 50% of the vote, I will be a part of the runoff, hopefully, if, if it happens, right? Best best case scenario, I win outright. Worst case, I get at least into the runoff with someone. The top two people um, have to compete in December, probably be mid-December, right before Christmas. The weather is going to be unpredictable. So I am hoping that we can win outright, which would be incredible. If I have to say any like last parting words would be to speak truth to power. Not because you're going to change necessarily things by, by speaking it, but because you never know who's listening. I would not be who I am if my ancestors had not spent the time speaking around me and speaking to me. We need to just continue to, to beat our drum in whatever way we can um, and to not succumb to the centrist thinking of, like, you know, who's a more viable candidate or who's more electable. 
getting behind people who are really in it for the right reasons and demanding more of our leadership at every single step of the way. We say as part of our theme for the campaign, it's not the waking, it's the rising. And that's a song from Hosier that, that we pulled up. But it is, waking is so important. You need to know the thing that you're tackling, um, but then you need to tackle it. Yes, I agree. And I, and I really like the emphasis on understanding the person inside of a system. I always have imagined myself as a therapist um, who's, let's say, I have a client with me and we're walking through the jungle <laughs> and there's all these vines and all these trees and I, and I have one of those machete things, right? And I'm trying to like lead the way with this machete and I'm like trying to cut everything down. If our politicians and people who were running things could just like bulldoze that stuff so that I can do my work and like actually do the mental health stuff instead of me carrying around the freaking machete like that would make my job so much not just easier but I would be way more effective and so I feel like setting up all of those things um, to help social workers and to help therapists really get to the root and do really good work is going to be really helpful. I'm hoping that people hear this and they go out and vote which is when? November 3rd or over um, early voting? October 13th, um, Greg, Greg Abbott moved it up, so um, which is good. Um, uh, October 13th, we're encouraging folks to vote early um, so that they can stay safe from COVID. Um, I voted early in the primary, and it was very easy, very fast. I didn't have, I didn't think I had any kind of exposure because of the way things were handled, so it was almost like touchless voting. So we're hoping that people will do early voting. If you need to do the mail-in voting Find out how to do it. Do it early as well because it needs to arrive before the election day. Yeah, spread the word. Spread the word is what we need the most right now and also commit people to actually doing the thing because likes on Instagram are not going to get me elected, unfortunately. You know, we need right. people to actually, if you have the privilege of voting, do it. Thank you so much, Veronica, for joining me on the podcast if you want to get a hold of Veronica or myself, please visit www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.org. Thanks everyone for listening to us today and we'll catch you next time.